is like week 21 that we have been in the book of Romans. Um, and I'm up to chapter 9 and 9, 10, and 11. Um, Paul pulls away from doctrinal, doctrinal issues and talks about the nation of Israel, the past in chapter 9, the, the, the present in chapter 10, and the future in chapter 11. Um, a large passage this morning in Romans 9, which is where we left off with verse 13 last week and move through verses 14, and we'll try to finish the whole chapter because it has one theme. I'm not going to read all of those uh, verses. If you want to follow along this morning, um, you can turn in your Bible or get it up on your iPad or phone, and we'll, the, 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 the text of the message will be coming from Romans 9, f- verses 14 through 33. And we are still, you know, we read last week how that God definitely chose the nation of Israel and named them as his chosen people. And the fact that he chose the one and not the other um, seems to indicate that he was unrighteous. And Paul begins this week, the text in verse 14, with that exact question in Romans 9, verse 14. He, he says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And then he answers his own question and thus begins with the arguments, certainly not. Uh, and, and talks a lot about the past with Moses. He quotes a lot of Old Testament scripture in these passages and and. You know, so for the next 19 verses in Romans chapter uh, 9, he, he answers and explains the question, is there an injustice with God? And when, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, that, that he's all-powerful, he makes his, you know, all these decisions, the natural man rebels against the sovereignty of God. Um, If anything is left to God to, to make the choice for us, for man and woman, immediately we conclude that there's an injustice, especially when you talk about the doctrine of election, which is what's being dealt with in, in these passages. And when you say, what do you mean? I mean God's choice to, you know, there's many that, that teach, well, you know, God has predestined that so many people and such people are going to be saved, and, and there's an injustice in that. And, and yet, as we've explained in weeks past, it's about the whosoever will. And it, we, we have to understand, I must understand, you must understand, that when it comes to the doctrine of election, it is always totally um, a matter of grace. And, and, and so we cannot avoid 
the doctrine of election, whether it's the election of, of Israel and Moses and, and all that is covered in these passages, whether it's certain people getting saved, we cannot avoid the doctrine of, a, of election, nor can we reconcile uh, it against the, the sovereign, you know, when, when it, it's, we, 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 it's hard to put it in words even when you try to reconcile the doctrine of election with sovereignty of God and man's free will. And so uh, there is but one light upon this confusion that we confuse. God didn't confuse it. There is but one light on it, uh, and, and, and what we talk of, of this darkness or gray matters or however you want to you know, you put that, and that is the Bible, and, and that is the light that is shown on it. And here's the way that I best say it. There's a little ditty that went around for years. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. No, God said it, that settles it, whether I believe it or understand it or not. And that's what we have to understand about the doctrine of election that is in this these passage. God said it, that settles it, whether we believe it or not. And, and when Paul is answering this question, is there unrighteousness with God, it is unthinkable. It is unthinkable that a holy God would commit a mistake or an unrighteous act. Um, the Bible, the Word of God, the living Christ, uh, the Bible says the Word was made God and, and flesh and dwelt among us. It is infallible, and I make no apologies for that statement. There are no discrepancies. There, it is inspired according to what we believe that it is a God-breathed book and holy men of old wrote it as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so that, that within itself comes to the fact that God said it, that settles it whether I believe it or not. And then Paul, you know, we deal with these arguments. Um, it's proven the test of time the Bible has and it... it if you go through and, and look at just the fulfilled prophecies coming true to the smallest detail, time and time and time again, and, and yet we don't understand that we see just a small portion of what truth is and our knowledge and understanding of God. We think we know who God is and all about Him and, and how all this has worked out and how that He should have or should not have done... Uh, I'll illustrate it. A few years ago, our family, we, we went to the Grand Canyon. We, we made a northern trip, one vacation span. All of us went, and, and, and then we made a southern trip. And on the southern trip, we went in, in, in the evening so that we could see the setting of the sun on the southern rim of the Grand Canyon. It, that they say that's one of the most beautiful places. And, it, you know, and, and yet... In watching that, and it was an awesome experience, um, we only seen a small part. We say we've been to the Grand Canyon, seen the Grand. No, we seen a small portion, 
you know, how far can the naked eye see? And with it's not very much. And so to say I've been and seen the Grand Canyon, no, I've seen a small portion of the Grand Canyon. And, and yet, it's, it's the same with God. Um, we, we understand, yes, that was an awesome experience for us, and we watched the sunset, and we was on the southern rim, and, and that was a small portion. And such is true with our beliefs and understanding of God because we are human beings. And how can we fully understand with our limited access? How do, we can't even comprehend creation within itself. How that God can take dust and breathe life into it. And can take a rib and breathe life into it and make a helpmate with woman. And, and so when you look from that perspective, we only see a small part of what God. And for us to say that God is unjust or that God does not have the right, it's His creation and His universe. We don't give God the right to make those decisions because He is a sovereign God. And we have to learn to understand that everything He does is just. And so, and, it cons- and, and grace is considered in it all. Somehow, uh, we think that we understand it all, and in fact, understanding is just a mere speck of what reality is and what was past, present, and is to come. We just have a small snapshot of it. And so I would love to take the time um, and, and try to explain each of this verse by verse, but we would be here for a long, long time, and this series would continue out for another 20-some just in these three chapters alone. So... Um, to try to explain the doctrine of election, someone has said, um, it, you may lose your mind. And, and, and to try to explain it away, you'll lose your soul. And so, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to cherry pick these 19 verses and, and give you explanation. I, I would say to you, read it at, those 19 verses, you can read them as I go through or go home and read it this afternoon. But he discusses here the past and, he, and Moses and Pharaoh. He quotes scripture from Hosea and Isaiah explaining the sovereign purposes of God during this election of these different individuals. And so he... He starts with God is just and he chose Israel and yet condemned Egypt and and Moses was a Jew and Pharaoh was a Gentile and both were sinners. In fact, both were murderers when you look at it from that perspective and yet Moses was saved and Pharaoh was lost and Moses a slave who experienced the mercy and compassion of God and, and why? Because God willed it that way and in and, and, and that explanation. And this raises a lot of questions and, 
And God is sovereign. We must believe that God is sovereign in his work and in his acts according to his own will and purposes. And with that said, it was not a matter of righteousness in Moses and Pharaoh's um, in that decision, but it was a matter of the sovereign will of God. And what his purpose was. But the fact of God's sovereign will seems to create new problems with us and and the way of thinking. And if God is sovereign and this doctrine of election, then who can resist him? And and it raises, if, if one does resist him, then, you know, what right does God have to judge? And so when, when we look at it from that perspective, it is an age-old question concerning the justice of God as he works in human history. And that's what Paul talks about in the first four or five verses there from 14 through 17 or 18, 19 maybe. And, and it, it is similar to the questions that when you're out witnessing today and, and you know, People will ask a question, if God is sovereign and he's, he's in control and, and loving, why is there so much sorrow and tragedy in this world? And, and why do we see the innocent suffer? And, and we know, we know that God is perfectly just in all his decisions and what he allows. And we understand that we live in a sin-cursed world and that tragedy and loss and suffering is, you know, is, is a part of history and God's free, you know, what, what man considered as God's free will when they chose to eat Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the fall of man. And most of all of that is, is a continuation, if all of it, not most of it, is a continuation of that sin and that curse on man. And yet we read in Genesis, or we read in Genesis 18 verse 25, shall not the judge of the earth do right? It was a question back then. Whenever we see in the very beginning... Shall not the judge of the earth do right, was the question. And so, he had mercy on Moses, and he condemned Pharaoh. We must immediately ask, is that just? You say, you've got me confused as a, yo- uh, as a termite and a yo-yo. Paul's asking the questions and, and, and giving us. And, you know, so when, when we look at it, He elected Israel and rejected other nations, especially Egypt, at this time. Is this just? That's the argument that we see in these chapters, or in these verses in this chapter 9. And then Paul gives us three answers to that charge. And he begins in verses 19 through 21, and he says, Who are we, the first answer, to argue with God? It's in form of a question but who are we to argue with God, the creator of the universe? And so Paul instructs that God is the potter. We are the clay in his hands. And God is wiser than we are. And we are foolish to question his will 
or to resist his will. That's pretty simple response. We have feelings, yes. We have intellect. We have a a willpower. And we can resist if we choose, but we have to believe that God is just in all matters. And, and the reasoning, as we'll see as we get through, is because of grace. And, and, and I mean in all matters that God is just. That they are in the hands of God. And He is working out His perfect will. And however, knowing it does not excuse us from our responsibility, which is the free will of man. And so... Even Pharaoh, if you, according to the arguments that Paul is presenting in these verses, had opportunity to learn and to trust. If you remember in the plagues, it didn't have to happen that way if Pharaoh had let the people go. And so he had opportunity. Divine sovereignty, divine sovereignty does not deny human responsibility even though our finite minds may not understand or comprehend and, and them both. When you take the election of God and His design sovereignty and His will happening, it does not relieve us of our responsibility of our free will. And, and we have decisions to make. His second argument and you know we must never think that uh, God has has no rhyme or reason in what he does number two God has his purposes in what he is doing throughout all of history and all of time and we must never think that he enjoyed even watching uh, a tyrant like Pharaoh and, and you may not find any of this interesting, and that's all right, but we'll draw it to where it is interesting to us in just a few minutes. He simply endured Pharaoh, and he even stated as such in, in these passages. He, if you go back and you read Genesis and you understand, he said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. It it takes us always to that question because we think we understand God and yet we don't. Well, why did God allow all that affliction on his people? Why was he tolerant? Well, God's time and purposes is not the same as our timeline. You know, we have to remember a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. God, uh, God always vindicates God always comes with a, a cross with justice in those situations. We must never think that God is not a long-suffering God. He, he was long-suffering with Pharaoh, and He is long-suffering with us. When we live in, in, in direct rebellion with, with God, He takes long-suffering always into consideration. And he gave Pharaoh even multiple opportunities to be saved. And the the attribute of long-suffering is an ever-present 
attribute of God still today with mankind. And that, that ought to make a shout because if not, he would not be dealing with us according to mercy and grace. Many have stated God is going to have to apologize to, the, to Sodom, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah if judgment on the U.S. doesn't happen soon. Please understand God is dealing with everyone, us included, in this day and age with, wrong, with long suffering and his plan and purposes are still being fulfilled. And we must understand that. We only can see the picture of yesterday, today, and tomorrow through a small lens. God has a big plan, and he's working his plan. And so, and, and as is the enemy, <laughs> as, as we very well can see. So, you, you say, but, you know... <laughs> Obviously, Christ is coming soon. And the, the fact of the matter is, we don't know the day or the hour, um, but the aligning of the stars, if you look, is imminent for the return of Christ. The events that take place. And ultimately, of course, we know we know based on the scripture that God's purpose was to form his church through those individuals that trust Christ from both Jews and Gentiles alike. And the people of mercy and grace which he is preparing for his glory is his ultimate plan and purpose. We must understand that. Everything that transpires is God giving people a chance through long-suffering in order that they might be saved so that he can form the church and that we're all going to ascend to an eternal glory for God someday, his bride. Last but not least in this conclusion of, of these three arguments that Paul presents all of this was prophesied. Notice we're talking about the past, and all of this was prophesied. And, and, and I'll try to close it out and make it as easy as understandable as you can. But we have seen prophecy fulfilled right to this day. In 1948, first time in over 2,000 years, Israel became a nation prophesied, directly prophesied whenever Israel becomes a nation. In 1967, Six-Day War, I, I don't know how many history buffs you have in this room. Israel becomes a nation in 1948, yet they never had occupied Jerusalem. In 1948, they become a nation. In 1967, prophesied, Israel has control of Jerusalem. First time in over, over 2,000 years. It was even predicted 
prophesied that every stone would fall in the temple, become unturned, none would be unturned. Christ himself made that prediction. You want to know why that those stones were turned? Because the gold that was in the temple ran through the stones and the Roman army to get the wealth from the gold after seeing it burned took the stones and toppled them to get the gold out from between, prophesied by Christ what happened in 70 A.D. So as you look through the history of time and what has been prophesied, it's God aligning the stars for the church, for the imminent return, and and it all lining up. And, And we as the church are a result of what happened that Paul talks about in these days. And, 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 and <coughs> excuse me, it's where he takes us in, in, in this chapter in verses 25 through 33. <coughs> Thank you, dear. call that my COVID cough, but I had it before COVID. (laughs) It is where Paul takes us in chapter chapter 9, verses 25 through 33, because he talks about Hosea in in 2.23, and the reference here is a statement declaring God will turn from from the Jews to the Gentiles. That happened. It, 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 and, and it's proving that all these new people, would Gentiles, us, the church, would, would be uh, children of the living God. Never been defined that way before. Only Israel were the, were the sons of God. Then he goes and talks about the quotation from Isaiah 10 in, in, in verses 22 and 23, that only a remnant, of Israel will be saved during the great tribulation. You say, what is, what, what is all that? What, what, what are you talking about? There's, there's a lining that the church is going to be removed from the rapture, we call it. I, I don't, you know, I, we, I, I don't have time to explain everything this morning, but one day, all of those individuals in the near future, I believe, The church is going to be caught up according to the book of Thessalonians. And with that said, there's going to be seven years of a great tribulation on earth. And Paul's talking about this setup here in these verses. And he he alludes to those verses to where that during that time, there is only going to be a remnant of Jews saved. It's when God moves away from the church, we're gone for seven years. And during that time, 15 million Jews on earth. In 1948, they started gathering back in Israel. One of the most unbelievable processes to ever happen in, in mankind's history. They were dispersed all over the world, and yet they did not lose their identity of a nation, of God's people, of His children. They migrated back. And at the rapture of the church, which is future to come, we're all going to be caught up, then 
During this seven-year period, 144,000 of them are going to be saved. Sealed is the word that the Bible uses. And, you know, you think about that, that is a very small portion concerning how many Jews there are in the world today. 144,000 out of 15 million. But we also must realize how small of a portion of the church is being saved in this day and age versus how many people there are in the world. I think we could classify that as a remnant. It's also an indictment against the church as to what we witness, as to who we lead to Christ, as to how many are being saved in our churches. We, you know... we're not reaching near to capacity of what we could be because the Christian is not fulfilling the Great Commission by going into all the world and preaching the gospel. I mean, if you just ask the question to yourself, how many people have you led to Christ in the past six months? How many people have you led to Christ in the past year? Think about that. We're not reaching the world with the gospel. The church, in fact, have dispersed their responsibility, we being the church, by saying, well, we, we hire a missionary to go somewhere. We do. What about your neighbor next door? Missionary's not going to go to your neighbor next door. What about your loved ones, your family, not going to them? Their blood's going to be on our hands because we know the truth of the gospel. And so there is but a small remnant going to be saved, he alludes to. And we must realize that God's long-suffering is showing mercy, giving us time to reach our families and our loved ones with the gospel of Christ before the church is being raptured out. If, if he, and, and yet... We say, well, if there's only going to be a few saved, where's the justice from God? Paul's argument with that, well, if God saves one of us or only calls one of us this doctrine of election, then he's showing mercy because mercy is we don't get what we deserve. We all deserve hell based on our sinful nature and the way we have treated God. And yet grace is God gives us gives us what we don't deserve. You think about that. You say, what does all this prove? You know, you've rambled on and on and on. What does all this prove? That God was not unjust in saving some and judging others. Why? Because he was only fulfilling Old Testament prophecies given centuries ago and that all of this is prophesied as to what are the coming events as he'll deal, Paul does, with the present and the future in the next two chapters. You see, he would be an unjust God if he didn't keep his word. And that's Paul's argument through these three uh, different um, where he says, we are, who are we to argue with God? 
God has his purpose and his plan, and this was all prophesied, is what Paul says in those 19 verses. And when we look at it from that uh, perspective, his faithfulness, his justice, his righteousness, his grace is true to God's character. With that said, he comes back (coughs) in verses 31 and 33, 31 through 33, and talks about the grace of God. (coughs) Israel tried to be saved by works of the law and not faith. And he makes a statement in those three verses, in verse 32, yet they have not attained. In other words, it's Israel, Israel's rejection of grace, Christ, the cross, in fact, brought about the Gentile salvation, the church. I know it can be very confusing, but when you understand where Paul is, is, is going through or going to in all of this, it's Christ, God's foundation stone of salvation becomes a stumbling stone to Israel because they rejected him as the Messiah. And the, the beauty of it is, is God does not save people on the basis of birth, Israel, nor does he save people on the basis of behavior, the law. That's what all this comes down to in those last two verses. In other words, it's, it's, it's not what we do, it's who we put our faith and trust in. Israel rejected Christ. We may have all these ide- ideologies of what salvation looks like from baptism to good works to any and everything else under the sun that you want to talk about in the forms of religion, and yet when it comes right down to it, God does not save on the basis of birth, nor does he save on the basis of behavior. He saves on the basis of belief and trust in his son. And that is a mystery as to who is the elect That's where all this started in the beginning of this message. He saves by grace through faith. And it is not a question of whether we are among God's elect. That is a mystery that only known to God. And the offer, though, is made to whosoever will to put their faith and trust in Christ. And when you look at it, Revelations 22, verse 17, as he's closing out right prior to the judgment of God and folks being cast into hell, this statement is made in Revelations 22, 17 that that tells us election, the elected ones, are those that whosoever will. It says, for whosoever desires come take of the living water freely speaking of Christ it's on our free will 
this morning, everyone sitting in this room will stand before God someday either at the beaming seat of Christ after the church has been raptured where we'll talk about our works and you'll be there based on that one verse. Did you take of the water, the living water, which is Christ? Did you put your faith and trust in Christ? Or you'll stand before God someday whenever he's casting folks into hell and you will be blotted out of the book of life based on you rejected Christ. It's a free will, whosoever. That's what we have to understand. And all the arguments between religion today about, and, and denominational circles about the elect of God. Well, you, there's no sense in you trusting Christ because you're not the elect. You, you hear all these crazy statements when anyone and everyone can say, I was presented the gospel and I have to make a decision. This morning, you're being presented the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the gospel according to Paul. And you have to make a decision this morning. And someday, you'll stand before God based on that decision, whether or not you trusted Christ as your Savior. And that's how all that chapter wraps up. Wow. I pray this morning that everyone sitting in this room has put their faith and trust in Christ. Because it's so important. It's a life and death decision. And it's not based on what religion teaches it's based on what the Bible teaches about grace and mercy and faith. Let's stand.